Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. Jermaine Mansekou Smith here in Atlanta. John Schumann is in New Jersey. John Hartzell behind the glass at headquarters. Lord knows what he's doing. Another action-filled weekend of NBA hoop shoe. The Nuggets knocked off the Raptors in, in a battle of uh, number ones on Sunday. James Harden has got the Rockets back to 500 with huge performances on Thursday and Saturday. He's also back in the mix on the Kia race to the MVP ladder. And who would have thunk it? The Indiana Pacers rocking and rolling. Victor Oladipo back in the lineup. Miles Turner playing his behind off and beating the Knicks for their seventh straight win on Sunday. And to top it all off, before we get to Christmas, shoe, we got trade winds blowing again. Trevor Ariza headed back to the Wizards for Kelly Oubre Jr. and Austin Rivers. The deal is official as of this morning. But all this started as a three-team deal with the uh, Memphis Grizzlies involved. I don't know if you read Lang Whitaker's piece with Chris Wallace or any of the other comments Chris Wallace made afterwards, but the confusion over which Brooks was involved in the deal, Dylan or Marshawn. I've heard of some crazy stuff going down shoe around trade time. I've never heard of the Brooks mix-up in a trade deal. Have you ever heard of anything as ridiculous as we got the wrong Brooks in the deal? I don't think so. I don't think you were on Twitter at the time. I mean, that was a wild, that was a top 10 sort of NBA Twitter moment. You know, those <laughs> like that, like half an hour where you have, um, you know, one a Phoenix reporter saying it's definitely Dylan Brooks. And then a Memphis reporter saying it's definitely Marshawn Brooks. And then obviously the team's realizing that they don't, aren't talking about the same guy because apparently Washington was the one talking to both teams with no interaction between the Grizzlies and the Suns. What it sounds like to me, Shu, is that as, as often as the case in trade situations, everybody's trying to play the dozens. Everybody is, is scheming and, and somebody slipped up this time. And, and this thing, once it leaked out, you, you couldn't stop it from coming out in all directions. Yeah. The leaking out was the one that it was the part that I was going to bring up. It's like, Okay, so how does it leak out to multiple reporters who are now reporting it on Twitter with still confusion between the teams about who's involved in the deal? Like, that's the part that made it bad. You know, like, it's one thing if if that all happened and the the news never got reported, and then we hear 18 hours later that the Wizards have traded um, Ubre and and Austin Rivers to, to Phoenix for a reason straight up. And then maybe you hear a few years later that, oh, it was really, you know, supposed to be a three-team deal, but the Suns thought they were getting Dylan Brooks and the Grizzlies thought they were trading Marshawn Brooks. The problem is that it all happened in front of, you know, in public, you know, like that the, yeah. I mean, that ends up being the issue. And you have to, uh, obviously some some people were PO'd about the whole situation. Some people would be Chris Wallace, who was less than diplomatic in in the comments he made, which I think he has every right to be. And this is the issue when you have third parties involved 
and there's a disconnect between the teams who are trying to make these deals. And NBA Twitter has taken over the the atmosphere. I mean, it's these things leak out. They they you know end up having a life of their own. You know, rumors turn into headlines, and from there, there's really no stopping it. At the end of the day, though, even with all the confusion. Does Trevor Ariza fix the Wizards? Does he fix what's wrong with them? Uh, no, I think what fixes the Wizards is the guys that are already there playing better. You know, John Wall yeah. and Bradley Beal and Otto Porter and those guys just playing 48 minutes. Playing like Wall did against yeah, the Lakers. playing focused for 48 minutes instead of giving us 20 minutes or 25 minutes of, of good basketball every night. Um, it's interesting. You know, I guess they basically had no future plans for Kelly Oubre. I'm assuming sure it's because he's, they know he's got to be paid this summer. Right, right. And, they've already, and they're already paying uh, Wall. And they're already, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I guess in that way, it's not a long-term loss, but maybe other teams would have been interested in a Kelly Oubre and maybe they could have gotten a different kind of asset than a Trevor Ariza who, you know, even if everything works out with him and even if the other guys play better at max, this is a sixteen, uh, the sixth seed in the East, right? I mean, there's, I don't think there's any catching the top five teams, especially with Indiana playing as well as they've been. I think a lot of it probably had to do shoe with the fact that Trevor Ariza has history with the organization in Washington and everywhere he's been, Trevor Ariza has been exactly what you wanted him to be. A consummate professional, a no-nonsense guy, a locker room presence for the good, very productive, and he plays both ends. That, to me, you know, this whole thing is what's lost in it is that just as I thought he would be, even though he, you know, he went into free agency last summer with that big offer from Phoenix and couldn't turn it down, Trevor Ariza is a valuable player in this league to a lot of good teams for precisely the reasons that this deal was getting everybody all caught up in a drama. I mean, he's he's the kind of veteran presence you need on and off the floor, has the type of game that fits basically everywhere, and he does it without a hint of drama. So, I mean, I, I get why you would want Trevor Reese in Washington. I just don't know. I agree with you. I don't know that he's a big enough – pill to fix what's what's wrong with the Wizards on a daily basis and he could come in and be their best defender but if the other four you know if there's if three guys are defending well and and two guys aren't on any particular possession it doesn't matter yeah yeah there's no question about their issues are much greater than one person I remember a few weeks ago everybody thought Dwight Howard might be the person who could fix what's wrong with him and that Obviously wasn't the case. It brings us to another week of the NBA.com power rankings, week 10 rankings. Denver Nuggets, number one, Milwaukee Bucks at two, Raptors at three, Warriors at four, and the Pacers, as I mentioned earlier, winners of seven straight after Sunday's victory over the Knicks at five. Shoe, when is the last time there were three Eastern Conference teams this highly thought of, not just in your rankings, but I'm I'm going to throw it even further. When's the last time we thought there were three legitimate championship teams in the Eastern Conference? Oh, jeez. You know, I was going back. Uh, uh, I got a question from Tom Heights, and he was asking me be a, about three te- three East teams being at the top of the league in point differential. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting question. So I just started digging, and I kept digging, and I kept digging. I had to go all the way back to 1983-84, to the last season where three Eastern Conference teams led the league in point differential. And that year it was uh, Boston, 
Milwaukee, and the Knicks. Right now, it's Milwaukee, Toronto, and Boston. So two of the same mm-hmm. teams and, and the Raptors who didn't even exist in 1984. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like it's, you know, five deep, the East looks great. Uh, once you get to six, then everything sort of falls apart. But, you know, we've been talking about, hey, let's get to the Eastern Conference semifinals for a long time. But the Pacers certainly look better than ever. And it's time to think, okay, there's going to be a really good first round series in the East as well, at least one. Do the Pacers have the personnel shoe to break through that four team group we've been talking about? Are they, you think they're capable of? Think about how close they were last year to beating the Cat. I mean, they were, they blew multiple opportunities to win that series against the Cavs last year. Right. We've said this before, and they, they outscored the Cavs by 40 points over those seven games and lost four to three. Just didn't have LeBron. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, they, so they, they I, I didn't think have... they can play playoff basketball. I mean, I think they have the pieces, especially with the improvements we've seen from Demonis Sabonis. He's, you know, he's only in his third year. Miles Turner still getting better. And and even Boyan Bogdanovich, who's been having a terrific uh, year shooting the ball, and and I think Corey Joseph has also had a a, a, a sort of an underrated uh, big se- you know uh, bounce back season um, off their bench, and his his defense mm-hmm. has been terrific. Um, I like really like watching watch him watch him like sort of run around the chase guys running around screens uh, on on the defensive end of the just how tenacious he he is really good at getting in getting through and around screens and he's kind of fun to watch if you just sort of focus on him on a few defensive possessions um so they they've got lots of capable players you know the matchups will be interesting you know like a bogdanovich having to match up at at the three with with uh with some of the east forwards is going to be interesting but um as far as one through Eight or nine, I mean, they're really, really good. They're the team of the week on on uh, your power rankings, the Indiana Pacers. And I know we don't talk about many of their players individually in terms of honors and all-stars other than Victor Oladipo. What's changed? I mean, what what's the big difference for them? What has gotten to the point where they can play as long as they did without Oladipo and be as successful as they were? Their defense has been really good. I mean, they've basically ranked, I think, first or second defensively over the course of their their winning streak. Mm -hmm. And I think Turner, you know, I need to see like a 20-game stretch of him before I start to really believe. Right. Not just five or six. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, he's averaging like 17 over over the winning streak and, like I said, the defense has been been much better. Turner is a big part of that, obviously. But and and you know they, I think they've been pretty good also in the minutes where they've dared to play Turner and Sabonis together, which is good. Thaddeus Young has had a had a couple huge games last week against against the Bucks and the Sixers. Two of the you know the two best, great defensively. Yeah, the, yeah, the two been, best yeah. teams they played on, they've beaten on the streak are are Milwaukee and Philadelphia. And Thaddeus Young was a huge part of those those two wins. Let me throw one more thing into the mix, and you tell me if I'm off base. Can you remember a coach resurrecting his re- reputation the way Nate McMillan has from the time he was let go in, in Portland to what he's done now as the head coach in Indiana? I remember people saying, you know, he's a dinosaur. He just couldn't adapt to the new style and, and the way teams were playing in the league. He's been, like, ideal for this Pacers bunch. I mean – a great fit after they had had plenty of success, uh, you know, with his predecessor. But this has seemed like it's probably worked out even better than the Pacers thought it would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and he's he's outlasted. You know, we we thought that you know firing firing Frank Vogel 
after the, the, the years of success that he had in Indiana was, was weird. Right. And Larry Bird, it was, gave us that, you know, that sort of three years excuse or something like that. Oh, they mm-hmm. stopped listening to you after three years, but then Nate McMillan has outlasted Vogel in his new stop in Orlando, obviously. So, um, I think the, the, the back, you know, his reputation from Portland, I don't know if, if people thought he was a bad coach. I think it was just interesting. Like he had this rep as a defensive coach in Portland. And then there was just this, a little bit of backlash from maybe uh, the analytics community of which I'm a part of because they just played really slow in Portland. And so their defensive numbers on a sort of per game basis looked better than they actually were. And they were actually really successful offensively. Mm-hmm. And you see some of that uh, in Indiana where, you know, they play at a really slow pace. But like I said, the defense has been terrific over this winning streak. And they do take a lot of mid-range shots. They are a little bit old school in, in that their sort of three-point to mid-range ratio is is near the bottom of the league. And so because Turner, you know, he pops to 20 feet instead of popping to 23. You know, a lot of guys, you know, Collison, Joseph, uh, Oladipo, very comfortable sort of stepping in and shooting pull-up mid-range jumpers. So there is a little bit of old school it, with that team, but it's working, you know, it, it, they're really tough to guard. I mean, they, they, their pick and roll game is really tough to guard with both Sabonis, you know, whether it's Sabonis rolling to the basket or whether it's Turner popping out, he's making some really good decisions on those pick and pops. If somebody comes to him, he's finding the open guy, no matter where he is, maybe weak side corner, it may be a high low pass, but he's, he's doing, making really good decisions out of the pick and roll too. Yeah. The one team that you have listed as your team to watch this week in the power rankings is is the one team I keep finding myself staying up late to watch when they're on the West Coast, and that's the Sacramento Kings. Six and two in December, eleventh in the power rankings, playing at Minnesota today. They've got OKC on Wednesday, the Grizzlies on Saturday, and the Pelicans Sunday. So a huge, huge statement week for this young Grizzlies team if they want to take advantage of a shoot. Nate Jones, who I think we both follow on Twitter, threw out a very interesting question yesterday. And I thought about it for a long time, and I was like, man, that is rough. His question was, who's the better pro long term between Luka Doncic and De'Aaron Fox? <laughs> and it's, it's a tricky question because they're both young guys in the sense that they're young in age. One has far more you know, high-level professional experience, obviously, in Doncic than the other. But I would argue that Fox is probably a more accomplished NBA player at this point, not only because he's got a year on Doncic, but because he plays on both he can play on both ends as well as he does. But I think that's a fascinating question. And one that if you're a fan of the Mavericks or the Kings, you should be fired up about because you know, you've got some discernible young talent that looks like it could lead you for years to come, you know, in dynamic playmakers, guys who aren't traditional playmakers in terms of traditional point guards, but both, in my eyes, would fill that void for those teams in terms of being the primary playmaker. Who would you take? <laughs> and again, shout out to Nate Jones on, on for bringing this up on Twitter. Who would you choose long-term between De'Aaron Fox and Luka Doncic if you had to pick? I don't have an answer to that. Um, I mean, really, I don't, I, and I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hot take machine whatsoever. And I certainly don't have an answer. Um, Doncic would be, I mean, I guess it would depend on who else I have. I mean, Doncic would, is probably more comfortable playing off the ball. 
Um, whereas Fox probably at this point needs to have the ball in his hands. But Don, uh, Fox, with that quickness, I mean, he can break down a defense. Doncic can get where he wants to go, but Fox, with that that quickness, is just impossible to stay in front of. Right. And I would say Fox is a better defender at this point, although Doncic has size, so he's not necessarily uh, uh, a long-term liability on that end of the floor. It's a mm. great question. It's fascinating. I mean, Fox... I mean, I, I guess Doncic has has just got a little bit more well-rounded package, I guess. Yes. So that yes. might be my determining factor. Like, if if I would worry about Fox when he doesn't have the ball, where I wouldn't worry about Doncic when he doesn't have the ball. Um, right. So uh, it's it's a fascinating question. I guess I would lean Doncic, but uh, it's not a yeah. not a uh, a strong opinion right and i'm let me you know what let me double check and make sure i didn't butcher his question because the question might actually have been more along the lines of who has the ceiling you know the the higher ceiling which to me is always a tricky question no actually it was it was the right question who will be a better player long term Doncic or fox and and i I got to thinking we don't we don't spend as much time debating players you know like like players young bigs, whatever, as we used to before everybody started viewing these things through through a different lens, through the analytics lens, which you do as well as anybody. Analytically speaking, what has a higher ceiling in, in today's NBA? Uh, a, an ultra-skilled wing player or a dynamic athletic point guard? And the reason I ask that is I look at, I think of Russell Westbrook. And I think of John Wall and all the different point guards who have come into the league, Ben Simmons, guys who have maybe have a flaw in their game, but because of their playing what I think is the preeminent position, even though we still focus on the, you know, the perimeter wing players as the kind of the di- dominant guys, that having an, an elite athletic point guard to me is the first step in putting you over the top as a team if you don't have LeBron or Kevin Durant you know, or one of the handful of truly transcendent, and even if there's that many of them, wing, you know, wing players. I think if you got a point guard like Fox, you could get to competitive as quick as anything because of a a dominant elite athletic player at that position. It's a good question. Take like last season's Chris Paul, for example, of a dude that Mm -hmm. just was smart and skilled not very explosive, barely gets to the rim, but just such a good shooter off the dribble and such a good sort of operator, you know, with a pick and roll where he just has, gets, can get a half a step on a defender and, and, you know, get him on his side. And then obviously a great isolation player. Take that versus, I don't know, like a, a Fox or a Ben Simmons. Like who did you want running your offense? I guess it depends on, on what you're looking at too. Like are you playing a game seven against the Warriors or or the you know the Celtics? Like maybe that's a different answer than you get a different answer than if um, you're playing eighty two games over and, and, and playing a lot of teams that you can sort of take advantage of in, in transition and, and uh, early offense. It's just I mean, it's just interesting. I'm 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 sending uh, Nate a tweet. I'm you know, I'm very uh, reluctant to play around on Twitter, seeing as how I've been hacked and smacked around by hackers on every social media platform to finish out twenty eighteen. But I am I'm sending him a hat tip on Twitter right now for uh, 
for the topic because, like I said, it got it got me to thinking about it. I was wrestling with the, the idea of it, and not just this, com- you know, debate about these two guys, but similar ones. I I, I know you're not a hot take master, shoe. You you made that clear, but I want to. When we have a, a slow week, which is never, John Hartzell, I'm I'm challenging you to. We're going to do a debate podcast where we come up with a bunch of players that we want to make compare and contrast their games, their whatever, their careers, what they could be. And uh, I'm, I'm challenging, you, challenging you, Hartzell, to come up with 10 players, <laughs> five, five different debates for a future podcast <laughs> where, we can, where we can examine some, some guys and debate who ends up being the better player. It'll be awesome. It'll be like a time machine thing where, you know, 10 years from now somebody could dig that thing up and tell us how wrong or right we were. But I love I love the topic, and in today's NBA, where we spend most of our time trying to keep pace with, you know, the action that's going on, we don't sit around and debate these kinds of things as much as we used to. I think the calculus now has has moved at such a wild and rapid pace that we don't sit around and argue the trivial, inconsequential things like this as we as we used to or as as we should. We only do it like at the finals or in the playoffs when there's enough enough of us around in one place to chew on this kind of stuff. It, it helps that there's there's just, uh, I think, more first and second year players with a ton of potential than we've had, yes. maybe we've had in the yes. last five or six years. You know, just thinking about last year's rookie class and this year's rookie class, two of the best classes we've had in a while. And then next year could be fun too. So um, I think that helps the, the sort of uh, discussion like that, the debate of uh, who do you got, you know, over the next 10 years. Yeah. Like I said, just a fascinating thing to think about. You know, the other problem with that shoe, I remember like years ago, God, I guess it has to be 10, 12 years ago, you used to text back and forth with people while you were watching the game. Like now everybody's on Twitter. So it's not just you and one other person texting back and forth or you and a couple of people on the group text. It's you and six bazillion people tweeting. But I remember like Lang and I would... Lang Whitaker used to be a co-host here on the podcast and, and worked with us at NBA.com, good friend of the program and a, and a great friend of ours. Lang and I used to text back and forth nonstop during games. Like, you know, we, he'd be watching some of you, you seeing this, are you watching this, you know, league pass this. And then, like I said, Twitter snatched that whole <laughs> buddy, you know, that buddy cop thing away watching games. Like, because now people are on Twitter, you know, doing the same thing and they're just doing it with a much bigger group and a much bigger audience um, well, and there was a there was a uh, it was a it was a struggle for everybody to get out their uh their mel brooks or marshawn you know their uh, scott brooks isn't in the trade or the brooks was here thing from uh shawshank redemption you know all that right. stuff i mean it was people were struggling to get that stuff out ahead of, ahead of everybody else on twitter on friday night yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to uh, refrain. I, I just enjoy being a Twitter voyeur. I, I, I read tweets and laugh and uh, rarely try and dive into mix because I get enough hate tweets as it is. I'm going to uh, I'm gonna also respond to some tweets one day on this podcast to some people who want to bellyache and moan and groan about their favorite player not being on number one on the MVP ladder every week as if you email me and make this great argument shoe about why I can't believe you don't have this guy number one on, on your MVP ladder here are, here are all the reasons he should be number one by the way I'm a huge fan of his or whatever it's like yeah that's the problem like I'm not fan fanning out on any one guy or I don't have any rooting interest I'm trying to be as logically impartial as possible so, yes, if you get mad at me because I don't respond to you, you know, going off on me or trolling me on Twitter, sorry, but it's not going to happen. Anyway, the other team that had me scratching my head over the weekend, shoe, 
because I've, I'm now seeing the vision of exactly what they could be. And then I watch them fall flat sometimes when they just don't have enough to put their finger on, on the button to zap that energy into the, into their team the way they need to is the Lakers. You know, I watched Lonzo and LeBron get matching triple doubles the other night in the game. You know, both of them getting triple doubles look great in that win over the Hornets. And then they come back against Washington and John Wall just takes them apart. I'm as impressed with Lonzo's performance this season as any, as anybody could be. I think the strides he's made have been huge playing alongside LeBron. Not as easy to do as everybody thinks. I also like his focus and the fact that the, the whole off-the-court circus has not been a factor for him this year. But are you are you concerned at all at the ways that the Lakers kind of roller coaster right now in terms of being great at moments and then looking like the doomsday, you know, Lakers that, that people were worried about would show up this season with LeBron in tow? Well, I mean, that Washington loss was the second game of a back-to-back, and Washington was rested – so it was the rest, what we call, what I call a rest disadvantage game, whereas they, they were playing the second game of a back-to-back against a rested opponent. So you could right. sort of put that into context. They were missing JaVale McGee. I don't know how, how important that might be to you, but, you know, Tyson Chandler has been good and they were destroyed in his minutes on the floor. So it doesn't, maybe the, the McGee uh, absence doesn't really matter. Right. They're a little bit of a feast or famine team in, in sort of more ways than one. Um, I wrote something uh, on last week about, how this was through Wednesday's games. They they were number one in effective field goal percentage in the first 12 seconds of the shot clock and 30th in effective field goal percentage in the last 12 seconds of the shot clock. So mm-hmm. they are a team that flourishes in transition but struggles, you know, sort of in the half-court offense when they have to come up with a bucket, you know, against a set defense. So And the, the two guys that sort of exemplify that most are, are Ball and Kuzma, who are the two guys that have sort of struggled most. I looked up Ball's numbers again this morning. He has shot 27%, 26 for 98, uh, which is 27% in the last 12 seconds of the shot clock. So he is like him and Kuzma, they, those two guys are great in transition. And I think it's interesting that rather than sort of cater to LeBron, this team has sort of kept its personality from last season. You know, they, they sort of kept the the young guy personality where they run, you know, and they and they try to play in transition more rather than sort of walk it up with LeBron. Not that the Cavs ranked near the bottom of the league in pace. They didn't. But you can sort of see that, like, and and we saw it with the roster moves and that they they went with playmakers over shooters and that they've sort of haven't bent towards LeBron um, as much as maybe we have expected, you would have expected and as much as other teams have in the past, especially Cleveland. So I think that's kind of fascinating. But like I said, it's been a feast or famine proposition because they, while they've been really, really good in transition, they have been not good uh, in the half court offense. And it'll be fascinating to see if that continues, and then if it continues, how that translates to the to the postseason. Sure. Do you do you think it has anything at all to do with the fact that you can't play generally with a traditional setup point guard with LeBron? Like that you have to have a kind of an off the ball complimentary point guard when you're playing with LeBron. So you can't get into half court sets all the time when LeBron is managing the action in the game as often as he does. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can go all the way back to Mo Williams and how, like, yeah. while people will sort of rip him for being, you know, he had some rough playoff performances, but, like, he was a really good – like, the, the Cavs took a big step forward back in 2000 
eight oh nine, I guess it was, when they got Mo Williams. He made an All Star yeah, team. Yeah, and he was he was really good for them for two years because he was a, a guard who could handle the ball, but who could also shoot. And I think that was sort of a sign going forward as to the best way to compliment LeBron. And Mario Chalmers was a sort of a similar guard. And, you know, both of those guys sort of fell off once they, once they stopped playing with LeBron. Um, and so it's an interesting, you know, and, and Ball is still not a good three-point shooter um the one thing he's he's improved in is is his finishing at the basket off of last year where he i think he shot less than 50 percent in the restricted area last year and i think he's, he's up to 60 percent this year but he's still a poor three-point shooter struggling in the half court offense but still uh you know a good rebounder and a good defender so he gives you good things it's just um maybe not the ideal compliment to lebron especially in the half court offense and i have very little to complain about you know where lebron's impact is concerned on a team. I mean, he's, he's shown himself to be worth basically any and all the headaches when he, when he joins your team, because the overall level of success rises dramatically. Um, But this is one of those rare things about LeBron that I think you hear a lot of veteran players and former players voice this, how tough it would be to play with a guy like LeBron, if you're a certain kind of complimentary player, because it, you have to be a very specific talent. You have to zero in on a certain skill set to, to compliment him compliment him the right way or the way that suits best to LeBron and his game in order to fill that role. And it's, it's not easy. It's not something that a lot of people have been able to do. Even the guys who have done it at the highest level shoot, haven't been able to do it for an extended period of time. I mean, it took Dwayne Wade. Dwayne, I mean, Dwayne Wade, Wade's a Hall of Famer. It took, yeah, Kyrie Irving. Yeah, it took, it mean, took Wade like more than half of season to, to adjust and to, yeah. to, to, you know, really um, know where to, what to do when LeBron had the ball as far as, you know, cuts off the ball. Cause obviously he, he, he never became a, a great three point shooter. Right. And, and obviously this year, it's no secret that the Lakers have been much better with only one of LeBron or Brandon Ingram on the floor than they have been with the two of them on the floor together. And then obviously that's going to be fascinating to watch whether the Lakers think of Ingram as, as, as a piece for them going forward, or if they just see him as a piece of the, the next trade, you know, the, Right. that they make these are things that we uh dive deep into on the hang time podcast on mondays we always take a look at john schumann's nba.com power rankings check them out they are live in uh on nba.com as of this moment dig in digest direct all animosity towards john schumann uh, after you're done, he's uh, he's well built for it. He he'll you'll get a nap today, so you get yeah, a little. Just don't cat expect nap. a response on Monday. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna spend some time Thursday, shoe if we can, taking a pre-Christmas look at the league. Christmas is always my day. I, I say this all the time. That is my measuring stick day for teams, even more so than the first twenty to twenty-five games. There's something about the Christmas Day schedule and the vibe around the league at Christmas to me, that's everybody's already in a lather. Of course, the teams they've been playing for months, but something about Christmas is a signal. Like I like to watch who comes out of the Christmas day showcase games, what teams come out after that stretch between Christmas and say the week leading up to all-star as a, you know, that stretch is an, is an opportunity for a lot of teams to make some, some noise, to, to make changes, to put themselves in a, in a completely different light than they may have been prior to that time. Trades like the one we talked about earlier, 
with Trevor Ariza joining the Washington Wizards certainly can factor into that. Getting the injured players back healthy around that time or, you know, integrating a guy into that mix during that time becomes a factor. All these different things that could play into it. But be very curious to examine the NBA pre-Christmas or right around Christmas and then going forward. We'll do that again on Thursday's episode of the Hangtime Podcast. Uh, so we'll be back. And we, we want you to make sure you come back and join us, listen and enjoy the conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes all season long. For my main man, John Schumann in New Jersey, John Hartzell at headquarters, making it all happen to Saku Smith here in Atlanta. We appreciate you. Don't forget to leave a review. Let us know what you think. And we'll see you right here next time on the Hang Time Podcast.